Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 11, Cyrus the Great. In 612 BC, the Neo-Assyrian Empire had finally angered enough of their neighbors to rally them to a full-scale uprising. During the sacking of the capital city, these libraries were destroyed and the clay tablets housing the ancient literature were shattered to pieces. Luckily, though, archaeologists have uncovered these shards of clay tablets and have successfully assembled both the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Babylonian creation myth. With the Neo-Assyrian Empire gone, a new regime took over the empire made up of the Medes and the Babylonians who united to topple the Neo-Assyrians. When the Neo-Assyrian Empire collapsed, it was at its height. Like, they didn't have a slow decline. They were at their maximum territory. And the reason they they fell is because they had just angered so many of their people that they just had enough and they up they rose up against them and these libraries that that they had they were created by some of their kings who had orders to go out and find all the clay tablets from the Babylonian empire and all the great civilizations that came before it and they made copies and this really was probably the most vast library of ancient literature ever to exist and it's a uh, quite sad that they destroyed it the Medes united all of the subjugated tribes of the old Neo-Assyrian Empire and molded them into a single tribe and then ruled over them as a brand new emperor. The Mede Empire used all of the old infrastructure of its predecessor and grew to enormous heights. The Medes were the native Iranic people and they now had control over their neighbors. On the western border of the Mede Empire was Lydia a small empire that broke away from the Assyrians and did not join the Medes. The Lydians ruled over most of Anatolia and several islands on the coast, including the Greek Ionian states. Even though the Greek city-states of Ionia were under control of the Lydian Empire, they did not seem to be that upset with it. So just to kind of reiterate the fall of the Assyrian Empire, before it fell, this empire had complete control over many older empires that were existing in the region, including the Babylonian Empire that was around before the Assyrians, the Egyptian Empire had fallen to the Assyrians. These were all different ethnic groups of people who had their own cultural background, and, and they were subjugated to the point of breaking under the Assyrians. And just to give you like one quick example, there's a story where a city... Up, rose up against the Assyrians, and as punishment, they had them all flayed alive, and they sewed their skin onto these pillars. And this treatment just didn't sit well with the people. So around 612, actually a few years before it, every province was rising up against the Assyrians. And Babylon was led by a, I guess you'd call him a governor back then. He, his name was Ashurbanipal, he really started to uh, fight against the Assyrians at the same time as the Medes, and so did the Egyptians. So when they all came up to the capital city of Neo-Assyria, like they, they already went up, they sacked Asher, and now they're at the new capital, Nineveh. And Nineveh was like this technological city marvel. It had trenches, it had rivers going right through it, it had all these dams and giant city walls with streets and 
large city blocks. And what the Medes and the Babylonians and the Egyptians did when they got there was they just dammed the river up going into the city. And then they released the dam and the flood came in and it destroyed part of the walls. And then just thousands of angry Babylonians and Medes and Egyptians ran into the city and stormed it and slaughtered everyone inside of it and shattered everything and burnt the city to the ground. They were they were taking out their anger from centuries of persecution. Okay, so I just want to paint a picture of what the empire looks like now that Nineveh has fallen. With all the different coalition forces now free, they kind of took their own territory out of the Neo-Assyrian Empire and created their own smaller empires. So Egypt took back its traditional territory of Egypt, and now they're they're back in control of their land. Uh, Ashurbanipal, he took control of the Babylonian territory, and he's got a, a Neo-Babylonian empire going on in the south. Up in the north, the Medes took the whole northern strip of the old Neo-Assyrian empire that kind of folds down into modern-day Iran. And down at the bottom of Iran... Near the Persian Gulf, there is a group of people called well, the Persians and the Elamites. And they're, the Elamites and the Persians are very closely related, but they're, they're way down in the south, and they're kind of a puppet state. And then way up on the far left is where Lydia, Lydia is. And Lydia is kind of on the border of like modern-day Turkey in Anatolia. So this is the state of the Neo-Assyrian Empire right after it fell. It's now several territories with each leader who led their armies in the battle against Nineveh, now they're all kind of calling themselves emperors, ruling over their own smaller piece of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. In 585 BC, the Median king died, leaving the throne to his son. Even though the Median Empire was massive, it was not strong enough to survive the first transition of power, which is a very dangerous time for any empire. Unfortunately for the new king, he would not hold on to his empire. A king named Cambyses ruled over the Persian kingdom along the east coast of the Persian Gulf in southern Iran. Their neighbors and close relatives, the Elamites, lived in modern-day Kuwait, where the largest rivers flowed into the Persian Gulf. To the north, the giant Median Empire ruled from the edges of Turkey to the edge of Afghanistan, more or less half of the entire Silk Road. For now, Cambyses, the Persian king, was a puppet to the Median Empire. And he was okay with that, so long as there was peace. But Cambyses' son was not so cool with the situation. His name was Cyrus. In 559 BC, Cambyses died, leaving his son Cyrus in charge of the Persian kingdom. Before Cyrus could make a move against the new Median Empire, the emperor Astyages made a move against Cyrus, sending his top general to invade and subdue Persia. Fortunately for Cyrus, the top general had a lot of respect for Cyrus, or was afraid of Astyages. The general informed Cyrus of the emperor's plans, and even went as far as to unite Cyrus with other tribes within the Median Empire. The Median top general encouraged Cyrus to rebel against the Medes and then defected to Cyrus. Together, they took on the Median armies and battled towards the capital city of the Median Empire, Ecbatana. 
In 550 BCE, Cyrus and his allies met the Median Emperor outside of the city walls of Ecbatanum. After a long battle, Cyrus defeated Astyages and the Median Empire collapsed after a short run of less than 100 years. Now Cyrus the Great commanded a new empire, one that wasn't going to be cruel like its predecessors. The Persian Empire is now born, and Cyrus has his targets set on the Lydians. Before invading Lydia, Cyrus sends messengers to the Greek Ionians, offering them a chance at overthrowing the Lydian kings, but the Ionian Greeks refused the Persians' offer. In 547 BCE, the Persians showed up to battle with thousands of archers and mobile towers. They cut down the Lydian troops. The large focus on archers filled the battlefield with millions of arrows, acting similar to machine gun fire in World War I. They completely overwhelmed the Lydian armies and destroyed them. But one group of soldiers put up a very valiant fight that impressed Cyrus. By the end of the battle, Cyrus had the Egyptian army completely surrounded and was ready to cut these men to the ground, but gave them an offer to join him instead. The Egyptians accepted Cyrus's offer under one request, and that was that they don't have to go to war against their old ally. And Cyrus thought this was a very logical, reasonable request, and he accepted their terms and allowed the Egyptians to surrender to him. And instead of going to war and killing these Egyptians, he now just absorbed another superior fighting army into his ranks. This was the beginning of what you would call a benevolent ruler. In 546 BC, the Persians conquered the Lydian Empire, adding it to the Persian Empire and adding another crown to Cyrus's head. Before now, Lydia had been a loosely defined empire. A better description would be a collection of tribes ruled over by a single king. However, the Lydian Empire had been around for over half a millennia. Lydia had control over the Greek Ionians, but they never really made a big deal about it. They didn't disrupt the Ionian way of life, so no one really cared. But as soon as the Persian Empire took over, everything changed. The highly administered Persian Empire got right into the thick of Ionian politics and economy. And this did not sit well with the Ionian Greeks. Cyrus the Great then set his target on the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Just like the Median Empire... The Neo-Babylonian Empire was a chunk of territory claimed by King Nabopolassar at the collapse of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and it was a large chunk of land consisting of modern-day Iraq, Syria, and most of the Levant. And when Cyrus rolled into the land, several cities surrendered without incident. In 539 BCE, Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon and crowned himself king of kings. Cyrus was the king over many different lands and people, all of whom had been enslaved by terrible empires for thousands of years. Cyrus took it upon himself to liberate all of these suffering people, to relocate them back to their ancestral homeland from whence they had been forcefully removed by the Assyrians. Cyrus restored the religious gods that had been captured by the Neo-Assyrians and is even known for freeing the Jews and returning them to Israel. He is also credited with the commissioning of the Second Temple of Jerusalem. Cyrus was such a great man that people who were ruled by him referred to him as their father and liberator. Cyrus was the most tolerant and fair ruler from the classical period. He was also a Zoroastrian and believed in the one true God and the eternal battle against the evil. This is important because it is right around this point that the 
Jews were writing their literature down, and it is believed that Zoroastrianism helped turn the Jewish faith from a polytheistic religion into a monotheistic religion. Now, um, one thing I do also want to note here is that uh, when I mention uh, Cyrus freed the gods, what I refer to in this instance is back during the days of the Neo-Assyrians, when they captured a city, they would take the god out of the city and bring it to the capital. And the god was usually just a giant gold statue, but that would just utterly cripple and destroy the people who lived there. So the act of returning the statue of their god back to the city was like the most benevolent thing anyone had ever gone through. It, it was really, I don't know, it was, it was a big change. Is there anything you want to say about Cyrus before we move on to the next segment? Well, I'm afraid I'll probably be repeating what we just said, but uh, he strikes me as being a really special leader. Um, things up until then were, people were pretty vicious, and he seems to have a nice, calm spirit about him to a degree, anyway, at least in comparison to others. So he's actually inspiring in a, in, in a way. I mean, I'd never want to be a conqueror, but uh, I just like the way he, he dealt with his subjects. He was way more civilized. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, and there are, there are even instances of people wanting to be conquered by him. And while he was alive... They referred to him as their father. Not like a patron saint 100 or 200 years later, but while he was alive, they referred to him as father. Like the people loved him. So as we were just talking about how great and benevolent Cyrus is, in 530 BCE, Cyrus was killed in action while campaigning in modern-day Kazakhstan. So he was still a warlord. He was trying to annex the territory that entered into the Eurasian steppe which would protect him from any evading steppe tribe. This region was known as a common passage where horsemen from the steppe would enter into the fertile farmlands of the Middle East. When Cyrus the Great died, the Persian Empire spread from Pakistan and as far west as the Bosphorus. It was one of the largest empires the world had ever seen. And Cyrus's son Cambyses II was about to make it a whole lot bigger. Now one quick note too. The Persian Empire isn't always referred to as the Persian Empire in history. It's also referred to as the Achaemenid Empire. But we'll call it the Persian Empire because it's easier. The reason it's called the Achaemenid Empire is because the empire is made up of many different peoples and the Persians are just one of many people in that empire. But just to make it easier for everyone, we will be calling them the Persian Empire. In 527 BC... Cambyses II plotted with an Egyptian doctor to overthrow the new pharaoh. This plan to take over Egypt would remove the last remaining empire on his western frontier. The plan involved a bit of diplomacy, and it all started with Cambyses II asking for the pharaoh's daughter in marriage. Strangely enough, the current pharaoh agreed to Cambyses' request. However, he was dishonest and sent the daughter of the previous pharaoh, who was just overthrown. As soon as the princess made it to the capital of Persia, she spills the beans and confesses everything to Cambyses II. 
I guess the princess was still mad about her father being murdered and then sold off to a foreign king. This, of course, led to Cambyses II getting furious and vowing to take revenge on Pharaoh Amasis II. In 526 BC, Cambyses II was planning his invasion of the Egyptian Empire when he received counsel from a Greek tactician who had been serving under the pharaoh. This Greek tactician was named Thanes, and he urged the king of kings to seek alliance with a great Arabian king. Only by allying with the Arabian king could he sneak his army to Egypt through the endless Arabian desert. This king provided protection and an escort on the long voyage. Arabs guided the Persians through the sand, while providing food and water, which kept the army from dying while marching through the scorched earth. Borders were usually unguarded because no one could survive the desert. So they never expected an entire army to come storming out of it. A lesson that would have to be learned all over again in 1,200 years. With Cambyses II marching across the Arabian desert under escort from the Arab king, Cambyses II finally made it to his target in 525 BCE. The Egyptian city of Gaza was surprise attacked and laid under siege by the Persian army. Even though this city was hit first, it was one of the last to fall. The Persians besieged the city and sent the majority of their forces into the heart of the Nile Valley, striking Pelusium next and then preparing to attack the capital city of Memphis. Pharaoh Samtik III, a new and young pharaoh, was so mad that his Greek doctor and military advisor had betrayed him to the Persians that he took Thanis' male children, who were still living in Memphis, and had them executed. It is said that he had them tied up, cut, and drained of all their blood, which was poured into wine, and then drunk by the pharaoh. Pretty, pretty rough stuff. <laughs> the pharaoh was so pissed off and had his entire army sent, sent to Pelusium to prevent the besieged city from surrendering. But Cambyses was clever, and used a fear of the Egyptians against them. The Egyptians worshipped cats. In fact, they were terrified of them. And the Persians figured this out. So they painted cats onto all of their shields, preventing any of the Egyptian archers from firing upon them. The ploy worked. As the Egyptians hesitated to attack their enemy, they were slain by the thousands. It was said that seven Egyptians died for every Persian. Pharaoh Somtik was forced to retreat back to Memphis. According to Herodotus, Cambyses offered the Pharaoh a chance to surrender, but his messengers were attacked and chopped to pieces. Their severed limbs carried back to the city. The siege was relentless, and by the end of it, Egyptian losses were even greater here than at Pelusium. Where the city fell, the Pharaoh was taken prisoner and put under house arrest but he quickly committed suicide after attempting to start a revolt. The Persians had officially annexed Egypt into its empire. There is speculation that Cambyses then continued his campaign into the Kush kingdom, which is in modern-day Sudan. Now, I have a quote about the archers in Ethiopia in the assumed invasion of the Kush period. So from the battlements as though on the walls of a citadel, the archers kept up with a continual discharge of well-aimed shafts, so dense that the Persians had the sensation of a cloud descending upon them, especially when the Ethiopians made their enemies' eyes the targets. So unerring was their aim that those who they pierced with their shafts rushed about wildly in throngs with arrows projecting from their eyes like double flutes. So apparently the 
the Ethiopians had superior archer skills. Almost reminds me of the Mongolians, but uh, I don't think there's any actual evidence that Cambyses II went into Persia other than myth. But who knows, maybe they'll uncover the archaeological evidence and prove this. So I want to make a quick comment too about the Persian strategy when invading their enemies. Just like they painted cats onto their shields so the Egyptian forces would be too afraid to throw spears or shoot arrows at it. Persians had a similar strategy when they invaded the Lydian Empire. When, when the Persians invaded... Lydia. They knew the horses had never encountered camels before, so they decided that they would move their camels up to the front of the army, knowing that these horses would smell the camels and and it would spook them because they had no idea what these animals were. And sure enough, the act of moving their camels up was enough to throw off the enemy's horses, and that confusion allowed the Persians to like overwhelmingly win this battle. And this is the second time we see this happen, where the Persians use intel on their enemies, either their superstition or their vulnerabilities somehow, and they employ this in their tactic. And it works overwhelmingly all the time. Well, at least two out of two times it worked. <laughs> but it goes to show they use the Egyptian superstition against them. In 522 BC, Cambyses II died, apparently by accident. He stabbed his leg while climbing his horse and got gangrene, then died of it. However, it is also very likely that he was murdered by the man who became the next king of kings. There was a strange transition of power after Cambyses died of gangrene because his brother claimed to be emperor. There are also claims that Cambyses went insane and had to be removed from power. Someone called him out as a fraud, so someone who was very close with Cambyses before he died stepped forward and dispelled the imposter, taking the throne for himself and declaring himself, that is Darius, the rightful heir to the empire. In the end, we need to understand that Cambyses was a much harsher ruler than his father, and he, when he killed the Egyptians, he really pissed off an entire religion culture by his desecration of their gods. Darius was another great. This king of kings lived up to the name of Cyrus the Great, not just for his religious tolerance started from Cyrus, but also for his institutions. King Darius fixed the taxation collection system into a more centralized and less aggressive method. Aramaic was made the imperial language to standardize legal interpretations. He also introduced an imperial standard currency, making trade much easier and safer. Darius also built a postal service and even commissioned a superhighway that stretched from one end of the empire to the other. This way, he could have a rider on a horse galloping at full speed down his perfectly smooth road and with fortresses every so often the messenger could relay the message to a fresh horse and the note could continue down the road. This allowed for a message to be carried all the way from the frontiers of Greece back to the capital in modern day Iran. Uh, this reminds me of the Pony Express back in the early West days in the, in the United States. I don't know about the Pony Express. Oh, you don't know about that? Yeah, they they um, they had so they had horses, fresh horses waiting at the little stations and the, and the Pony Express guy, he would carry mail, jump on the horse, ride it until it was tired and to the next station, jump off, get on a new horse, and take off. Fresh horse. Yeah, and that's how they could make the mail travel faster. <laughs> it was pretty cool. So he was doing the same thing only 2,500 years earlier. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.